When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday, we release these special episodes where we look back at Risk content from our earlier years. Now, for a long time now, the first two years' worth of Risk episodes, the ones from October of 2009 through October of 2011, have been behind a paywall. But that's been a little confusing for a lot of Risk fans who are always telling us they didn't even know those first two years worth of episodes existed. So we thought it would be fun if every other Thursday now, we re-ran an entire episode from the very earliest days. This week, the fourth Risk episode ever to appear in the world from November 17th of 2009. It's an episode we call Sneaky Choices. One and all, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. Real kick-ass start to the show with a tune from Wormburner there. You can find them at wormburnerband.com. I'm Kevin Allison, and today's theme here on Risk is sneaky choices. Sneaky ones, those things you did when you thought no one was looking, times you thought, um... I can get away with this, or can I? Now, today's show is kind of special. For one thing, we have our good friend Janine Garofalo on the show, so that's lovely. But also, we're going all live with the stories. We had such a fun evening of the Risk Live show here in New York on November 4th. We're just going to serve up four stories for you here from that one great night. To start off, we have the man everyone loves to love. John Flynn. He's one of the hosts of Nights of Our Lives at the UCB Theater here in New York. The last time he was on our show, he was in bed with a drag queen from Georgia half his size. This time, he's the thief of time. I was so chubby that like my pecs looked like they could have been like budding adolescent boobs. And uh, I was very feminine, so I was often mistaken for a woman, a lesbian, but still a woman. And, you know, to, to make matters worse, I was like a huge drama nerd. Like, I did all the shows in my high school. I somehow got cast in shows at other high schools. And uh, I was from New Jersey, so I used to, like, cut school and come into the city when there was, like, a cast recording, at bar- signing at Barnes & Nobles. And uh, I went so far as, like, to save up all my allowance so I could buy a ticket to see one of uh, Michael Crawford's final performance in Phantom of the Opera. And I like went to the box office and made sure I had a seat that was underneath the chandelier so I would have the full experience. So that's where I was at the start of this story. I hope none of you ever were in that place as well. Um, and a week before I was supposed to go see this uh, phenomenal performance, uh, my family went away on vacation, but I got to stay home alone because my high school was doing the musical Grease and I was playing the pivotal role of Eugene. So they're like, all right, well, for that, you can skip vacation. So um, on the Saturday afternoon of our show, um, I was hanging out with some friends uh, at the mall, doing like what typical Jersey kids do, um, hanging out at the mall and just stealing stuff. 
Because even though we were drama nerds, we knew that paying for stuff was for suckers. So um, I just, we had left Prowns, where my black denim acid wash jacket had already, I had already stolen uh, cassette tapes of Camelot and Dreamgirls. <laughs> and then uh, a friend of mine, Susan, and I went into Sam Goody, and as we were looking through uh, tapes there, right? Um, I came across uh, this cast recording that I had been looking for for a long time. It was uh, uh, for the musical Time. You probably haven't heard of it, so let me just quickly fill you in. Time is a British mega musical from the 80s. And uh, what Time tells the story of this fictional rock star who is giving a concert, and in the middle of his concert, he is magically transported to the Intergalactic Council, where he must defend the planet Earth in the trial of uh, the Time Lord versus the people of the planet Earth. Because the Time Lord, as you see, believes that the uh, inhabitants of Earth are a threat to universal peace and safety, and so the planet Earth should be destroyed. Don't worry. The uh, rock star convinces them to spare the planet Earth, and then he is magically transported back to Earth at the exact second that he left in his concert, so no one's the wiser. And in this show, uh, the rock star was played by David Cassidy, and um, the, uh, the high priest of the, of, the, of the Intergalactic Council was played by a hologram of Laurence Olivier. It was honestly, it was the last job he did before he died. He like recorded all of the lines and they somehow made a hologram of him. So people would do scenes with the hologram of Laurence Olivier. So obviously when I'd heard about this, I was like, this show is gonna be amazing. And so I finally found the, the cast recorded and I was like, awesome. So I slipped it into my pocket. My friend Susan and I walk out of Sam Goody. We don't get three steps before, you know, the security guy comes and grabs us and pulls us back in. And I'm freaking out. We're both freaking out. But somehow, I don't know what overcame me, but they bring us into the back. And the first thing out of my mouth, I just go, let the girl go. She has nothing to do with this. And, they're like, and everyone's looking at me like, this lesbian is super protective of her girlfriend. Um, you know, so they, they check us both. They find she doesn't have anything. She wasn't stealing. She's not an idiot. Um, so they let her go. And then, uh, you know, they frisk me and then they call the cops. And I have nothing against the cops. I love the cops. They're very noble. But if you're a cop that they send to the mall to bust kids who are of a questionable sexual identity stealing show tunes, you're probably a douchebag. And these two cops were both total douchebags. Um, they come and they, you know, they try to get me to talk and all this stuff. And finally I was just like, I'm not saying anything until I talk to my lawyer. And they're like, oh, fine. You want to make it tough for you? We're going to make it tough on us. We're going to make it tough on you. So they handcuff me. And instead of just taking me to the police car, they walk me through the entire mall. <laughs> and at the time, it was the 32nd largest mall in the country. So it was quite a walk. Uh, and then they take me to the police car and they're driving me to the station. And I don't know why, but as I'm sitting in the back, I just go, I'm sorry, um, is this gonna take very long? Because I have a show tonight that I have to get to. And they were like, oh, you have a show? Oh, does someone have a show? Too bad, punk, you should have thought of that before you stole something. And they're just being jerks and I'm just getting very nervous. And, and you know, they're like, and they're like, you know, it'll be as long as it takes until your parents come down to, to get you to sign you out. You know, that's how long it takes. And it's like, oh, well, my parents are out of town. They're away on vacation. And so one of them just goes, well, I guess someone's spending the night in jail. And that is a, the, when I actually broke down and started crying. Um, and it was like, it was that like, horrible, like, adolescent sobbing where, like, you want to hold your sides, but I had handcuffs on. So I was just like, just like bent over and like keening in the back of a cop car. And one of the cops even went, yeah, you better cry, kid. I'm like, oh, I'm so sure he jerked off later that night to my tears. So, um, sorry. Um, so we get to the police station and they, you know, they get all my information, they fingerprint me and then they put me in this room, this sort of holding room and there's this other guy, kid in there who was also arrested for shoplifting. And he's like, and he's like, as where I'm all like sad and, and depressed, he's like angry and he's just like pacing around and like punching the air and like kicking chairs. And I'm like very nervous. And finally he just sort of stops and he's like, so uh, what did you steal? And I was like, 
um, a cassette tape for um, this British mega musical, Time. I don't know if you've heard of it. He's like, what the fuck are you talking about? I was like, ah, uh, not important. Uh, what about you? What did you steal, sir? And uh, he was like, a quarter. And I was like, a quarter? How do you steal a quarter? He was like, it was on the dashboard, dashboard of some dude's Thunderbird. I just needed to call my mom. And I was like, really? Really? You broke into a car to steal the quarter? Okay, whatever. Uh, I thought we were being honest here. I told you about time, but okay. <laughs> so then, uh, right about that time, uh, the police came into the room and they're just like, well, Mr. Flynn, looks like your dad's a pretty powerful man. We're gonna have to take you to your show now. <laughs> and, uh, 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 it is true, at the time, my father was the uh, senior district attorney for the state of New Jersey. <laughs> some people in law enforcement. Uh, in fact, uh, Supreme Court Justice Sam Alito was a, a frequent dinner guest at our house. So um, the same two cops are like driving me to my high school. And they're like, so you're Terry Flynn's son. Uh, that, he's a good man. You should be ashamed of yourself for acting this way. And like, to their credit, like, I'm sure my father wasn't excited that he had to take a break from his vacation so he could call his law enforcement friends to get his show tune stealing son out of prison so he could go to the spring musical. <laughs> but God bless him, he did it. So um, we're, we're pulling up to my high school and you know, it was like, it was like, like 7.45 at this point, like close to the show. And you know, Grease is a very popular musical. So there's all these people lined out outside and all that stuff. And as we're pulling up, one of the cops turns around and goes, so you want to be a big star? You want everyone to look at you? Well, let us help you out. And then they turn on the lights and the siren. So we pull up to my high school, the huge lights, big, big production number. And everyone's like, what's going on? Hubbub, hubbub. And then they leave me out of the car in handcuffs, past the whole line. Like my friends, my friends' parents, my teachers. And then we get inside and they're like, and I was like, all right, well, can, can you let me go now? They're like, nope, we need an adult to sign you out. I'm like, okay. They're like, is there any adult here that you know? I'm like, well, yeah. And they're like, all right. So they basically make me go back out on that line in my handcuffs. And I go up to my English teacher. And I'm like, would you mind uh, signing me out of police custody? She was very sweet about it. She's like, all right. She's like, are you okay? What happened? I was like, I'll tell you Monday. Um, so I get backstage and I do the show and it's sort of like, you know, the, the news had spread and uh, people had already started calling me Fingers Flynn and it was sort of this like, it sort of was like cool for a while. It was like, yeah, I totally badass. I stole the show tune. Um, and so I do the show and then as, like, I'm, I'm getting off stage and like there are my parents. They had like cut their vacation short and came home to bust me. Uh, so like they, uh, then the two of them walk me like through the house and everything. But at this point I didn't have handcuffs and I was a little annoyed to the walk of shame at this point. Um, so they're driving me home and my father's just like yelling at me. And he had this argument all the time that he used that I never know why he thought it worked, but he was like, what if one day you want to run for political office, huh? Think anyone's gonna want to vote for someone with a criminal record? And I was like, I don't care about politics. I want to be a star. Um, and uh, then they lay out the big guns. My dad's like, well, fine. You're not going to go, you know, like, you're not going to be able to see Fan of the Opera next week. And then I cried again. I was like, no, you can't. It's an iconic performance. I'm below the chandelier. And then, <laughs> and then my mom, like, oddly was just like, is there something you want to tell us? And I think her like, thought was like, maybe if you come out right now, it sort of distracts from the whole illegal thing. <laughs> and maybe we can. I didn't pick up on her cue, so uh, I just, I, uh, I didn't come out then. Uh, like I needed to. Um, and so uh, I was not able to see Phantom of the Opera, but um, I know. I suppose I could still go now. Um, <laughs> But uh, a couple weeks later, I went back to Sam Goody and actually paid with money for the uh, double cassette cast recording of Time, the British mega musical. And I went home and listened to it. And um, this might surprise you, but this is the shittiest musical 
that has ever been written. It's horrible. It makes no sense. It's boring and it's terrible. And I can't believe that I missed out on Phantom for this piece of shit. Thank you very much, you guys. A one, a two, a one, two, three, four. R-I-S-K. Risk management today. R-I-S-K. Can't spell it any other way. K-S-I-R. See? You can't spell it. S-I-R-K. Well, Douglas Sirk, he was the director, but I don't really know any of his work. R-I-S-K. What are you going to say? A little something from Marshall York and Leslie Collins there, friends from over at the People's Improv Theater. And if you're not familiar with the work of Douglas Sirk, basically, Rock Hudson almost dies, but Jane Wyman takes care of him. Or Jane Wyman almost dies, but Rock Hudson takes care of her. And the furniture is gorgeous. Next up, someone everyone's talking about now, Elna Baker, just came out with her memoir, The New York Regional Mormon Singles Halloween Dance. And there's a whole lot of shaking going on in the story she told at the Risk Live show, too. We call it the Icky Dance. So for three and a half years, I used to work at the restaurant Nobu, which is a really famous sushi restaurant in Tribeca. It's partly owned by Robert De Niro. And I think of uh, all the part-time jobs I had in New York, this job was sort of a window into a world that I knew nothing about, which was the world of the rich and famous. And as you know, a practicing Mormon from you know, a smaller town, this was kind of like the opposite of going to church was going to work at Nobu. And um, we, uh, as hostesses, the opening night duties would always include uh, one very important thing, which was the VIP list. And every night you would go down the VIP list and you would highlight the people coming in who were VIPs and you would make sure that they they had special treatment. And uh, you learn quickly the different types of celebrities that there are out there. There's sort of the reluctant celebrity who kind of wants to be in a table hidden in the back. They don't want anyone to see them. Then you have sort of the young starlit celebrities, the Lindsay Lohans who want want the table at the very front and they want to make a big scene. And then you have the more seasoned celebrities uh, who sort of just, you know, the Jack Nicholsons who want like the best table in the corner, but they don't want anyone to really bother them. And uh, prior to working at Nobu, I genuinely thought that like, if something was broken, it was broken. But then you learn like broken things are being fixed all the time for celebrities. And, um, and I, you know, it, to the point where I started to adopt that attitude. I, I remember uh, I was, a flight wasn't, I was waiting in line for a flight. It was gonna be canceled. Uh, I was late, I, and so I literally just went up to the woman and, and offered her $100, which is, <laughs> I don't even have $100, but I like took out $100, gave it to her, and I got on a different flight. And I only did that because I learned that at Nobu, because when people weren't getting their way, they would just slide 100 across the, the podium. Uh, so anyway, one night, I was uh, working at Nobu Next Door, which is the takeout restaurant, and uh, I um, got a call in for takeout, and uh, the guy started, you know, spouting off his order. And after everything he ordered, I would say, uh-huh. And he would say, you know, shiso peppers. And I would say, uh-huh. And he would say, miso soup. And I would say, uh-huh. And then he, uh, he said, I'd like a seaweed salad. And there was this long pause. And then I was like, hello? And he said, uh, just waiting for you to say, uh-huh. And I was like, oh, uh-huh. <laughs> So, you know, we finished his order. I said, uh-huh, after everything that he said. And then I got off the phone, and right when I got off the phone, I realized that he had ordered three dishes with eggplant in it, and we were all out of eggplant. I was like, oh, no. So I, I pull up his phone number, and it's uh, the area code is 310, which is what, as hostesses, we would refer to as the area code of entitlement, because <laughs> it was for Los Angeles. And so I call this guy back, um, Warren was his name. I call him back and I'm like, 
Uh, hi, this is uh, this is Nobu next door calling, and uh, you know, unfortunately, three of your dishes had eggplant in it, and we're all out of eggplant. I was wondering if we could just adjust your order. To which he replies, "How about this, little miss? How about I know there's a deli next door. Why don't you walk outside, go buy me some eggplant, and make my order as planned?" And like. When you work in a job like this, you are trained to deal with situations like this. And I dealt with many situations like this, very calmly and politely. But for some reason, in this instance, I didn't. I replied, instead I said, how about this little mister? How about you get the fuck over yourself? <laughs> and make a new order. And I was, like, I don't even swear, and I was like, um, so then, uh, so then he was like, whoa, uh, do you know who you're speaking to? I'm friends with Nobu. To which I reply, Nobu's very friendly. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's the name of the restaurant. It's such an easy name to name drop. And so then there's like a, a silence. And then he laughs and he says, he's like, I like you. And I'm like, great so we change his order and then I'm like okay great your order will be ready in 15 minutes and he's like I'm coming down there now I want to meet you and I was like uh, you know take your time <laughs> dilly dally on the way so you know a few minutes later I've put in this to go order a few minutes later the door opens and in walks Warren Beatty who is like uh, and it, it also, I'll, I'll disclaim this by saying it isn't actually Warren Beatty. I used his name in the story. But the real person who this story is about, I can't say his name because of two things. One, he's married. Uh, and two, because I found out later he's much older than he looks. 69. <laughs> so this person... Um, but he's similar to Warren Beatty. Think like that sort of classic sex appeal, huge star, Academy Award winner. And he's also, in addition to being an actor, a writer. So he's somebody that I had sort of grown up looking up to and like my all-time favorite screen kiss is this person. So he walks in and I, like, I'm like, what is Warren Beatty doing here? He never comes here. And he walks up to me and he says, uh, are, you, are you the hostess I spoke to on the phone? I was like, well, wait, the asshole is Warren Beatty? And so I say, yes. And he says, you're beautiful. I was like, uh, thank, thank you. And he's like, I told myself, no matter how ugly this hostess is, I'm going to try to bring her home with me. And I was like, like, wow, shoot for the moon. Um, and, uh, and so he's like, let me get your phone number. And I'm like, oh, you know, I, I don't give my phone number to customers. And he's like, oh, oh, come on, just give me your phone number. And, you know, I... I knew that he was older. I mean, I knew all the... But then it was like the kiss in the movie. Ah, ah. So I look behind me. My boss isn't looking. I scribble down my number and I give it to Warren Beatty. And about five minutes later, I get a text message that says, meet me at the Beatrice at midnight. Now, the Beatrice is this bar in the West Village that uh, actually closed down recently, but it's one of those places that's like so exclusive that like three men guard the door. And if, if you don't look perfectly right or if you're not famous the line that they give you on the way in is oh sorry we're closed for a private party and then somebody else will walk by and they're like oh yeah, yeah come on in <laughs> so it's like very obvious that they're they they sort of screen everyone who goes in there and i've been there before but i don't really like places like that because in order to get in if you're not famous you have to sort of feign like you're famous so you have to kind of wear like a, a hoodie and like be like all sunglassy celebrity incognito <laughs> and then just act like you don't care. And if you act like you don't care, you can get in. But then the problem is you're in a room full of people who've mastered the same skill. So it doesn't really make for depth or conversation. So I decide to go for Warren Beatty. And uh, you know, right af out of work, I, I take a cab up there and I make it past the three men at the door and I walk inside and he's uh, sitting at the bar alone waiting for me. And I walk up and he's like, I thought you weren't going to come. I was like, well, I'm here now. And so I sit down, and, and we start having, like, a conversation. It was, like, a legitimate, smart people conversation. We talked about, like, you know, books and bookbinding, pamphlets, paper, you know, like, really smart shit. <laughs> and, um, 
And then I was telling him how I was at the time I was working on a book. So I start talking about the book that I'm working on. I'm like, but I'm really like, I'm really stuck right now. And like, I know that you've written some things. Like, do you have any advice? And at this point, he sort of grabs my stool and moves it into him so that my, my legs are like in his crotch and he's sort of straddling me. And I was like, oh, ooh. I think Warren Beatty likes me. And he's like, I'll give you advice, but you know, first let me get you a drink. Now I'm Mormon and I don't drink. And I've lived in New York for nine years now and I don't drink. Uh, and so I say, no, thank you. And he's like, oh, come on, just have a drink. I'm like, no, no, I'm all right. He's like, get a drink. And he looks at me in this way that was like, he would be personally disappointed if I didn't get a drink. So I'm like, okay. And he's like, well, what do you want? And like, I know nothing about drinks, you know, like where I'm like sex on the rocks or like <laughs> the, the pink eye. Like, I don't know what to order. <laughs> so I'm like, uh, I'll just have what you're having. Uh, so he orders me a glass of wine and the bartender, you know, sets the glass down and I, you know, suavely, I like pick it up. And then they both are staring at me and they're like, well, do you want wine in your glass? I'm like, oh, <laughs> faux pas. <laughs> So I set the glass down and they fill it, you know, and I take it. And like, you know, from working at Nobu, I'd seen enough people drink that I was like, mm. <laughs> And then I drink. And like, it's so funny because you have to like, you have these novice reactions that your face wants to make when doing something for the first time that I was like actively trying to suppress. And so, um, I, you know, I have this drink and I'm drinking it with him. And then we start talking about, you know, he asked me who my favorite writer is, and I say Yates, and he's like, oh, you ever been to Ireland? And I'm like, no, and he's like, well, you know, I could take you there sometime. <laughs> I'm like, well, if I had a dollar for every man who asked me that. <laughs> and then as we're talking, um, he, he starts to, he puts his hand on my lower back, and he starts to move it in like these little circles. And I am not lying to you. Warren Beatty knows how to touch a woman. It's like, it was, it was like any, softer would have been too soft, any harder would have been too hard. I was like, what is happening to me right now? <laughs> and then as he's like, with one hand, he's moving it on my back, and the other one, it starts kind of moving up my skirt, you know, slowly. And then it gets a little higher, and gets a little higher. And then he's sort of like fiddling with the side of my underwear. And I'm like, I, do, I have a feeling this is going in a direction I don't go in. And I'm like, oh, God, uh, sh you know, should I tell him I'm Mormon? <laughs> it's a little late for that. <laughs> Plus, like, I've only ever been out with one celebrity before, and, um, and I made the mistake of telling him I was Mormon. And, like, whatever, I can use this person's name because we're friends, but it was uh, Michelle Gondry. I went on a date with Michelle Gondry, who's this French director, and he found out I was Mormon. So we're on this date, and he's like, uh, so you are the Mormon? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, uh, can you have the sex? <laughs> and I was like, oh, uh, not until I'm married. He's like, okay, okay. So, but, uh, what can you do? <laughs> so then I would like to be like simple. I was like, eh, nothing below here, nothing above there. And he was like, oh, what about uh, the armpits? <laughs> Can your boyfriend do anything he wants to the armpits? And I was like, yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. Yeah, my boyfriend can do anything he wants to my armpit. And he was like, this is good. He can take his penis and he can stick it in and out of the armpit. And if you grow the hair, it is like vagine. <laughs> like, I, I, I want to change my answer. <laughs> so... I'm like, okay, I'm not going to tell Warren Beatty that I'm Mormon. But I have to think of another reason that this is not okay. And so I was thinking about it, and I remembered one. And so I turned to him, and I, and I like, pushed his hand down, and I'm like, look, uh, a few years ago when I was working one night at Nobu, this big shot celebrity came in, and he was with this like, little younger blonde girlfriend. And where they were standing, they didn't think anyone could see him, but I watched him publicly finger his girlfriend. And I remember that day that I would, I, I swore I would never be that girl. And I, like, I don't know why now I needed the speech. Like, is this like, you know, like as though like a simple, please don't do that wasn't enough. But I was like, look, there's this thing about me. I know it's crazy, but 
I don't let men who I've just met finger me in public. <laughs> Can you please love me anyway? <laughs> so, so he takes his hand off my leg and he's like, okay, I got it, I got it. And then he moves his attention to kissing my neck. And he starts kissing my neck and then he's getting closer to kiss me. And I sort of tense up because, you know, we're in a crowded room full of like a very particular type of people. And um, I freeze up and he's like, what's wrong? And, and I say, well, you know, there's a lot of people here. And he kind of turns in his stool and he's like, these people? And I say, yes. And he's like, you think that these people can see us? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, these are the most self-absorbed people in the world. They can only see themselves. And it was actually really funny because in that moment, as I was looking at this sea of people, it really did feel like they were looking at us but they weren't looking at anything in particular at all. And it was just this like freeing moment where like that hump, which is like my propriety or whatever, <laughs> this usually takes a lot to get over. I was like, yeah, Warren Beatty, yeah. And I just started full on making out with him at the bar. <laughs> and so we're making out and you know, it, the, the hands, they start going up the skirt again and I'm you know, holding this glass of wine and, and it's this, this thing about me and I, you know, whatever it may be, you call it a conscience, call it being afraid, but it's this voice that will happen and it's like, is this the way things are supposed to be? And you know, you hear that voice and you're like, but this is the way things are. <laughs> but then I was like, look, just because this person was in a movie does that mean that they get to redefine you? I was like, oh, well, he was in more than one movie. <laughs> so then, you know, I, I set my drink down and I take his hand out from under my skirt and I sort of move it to my butt because like, you know, whatever, I'm not a saint, latter-day or otherwise. <laughs> and, and, and I start making out with him again. But at this point, I already know what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave. But you know, it's like binge before you purge. <laughs> so we make out for like another 10 minutes and then I, I like pull, pull away and I'm like, look, um, I need to go. It was very nice to meet you. And he's like, what? No, 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 come, come home with me. Just come home with me. And I'm like, no, I, I don't go home with men. Which like the way I put it was like, monkeys, yes! <laughs> men, never. <laughs> so he walks me out of the bar and outside he's like, well, you know, why don't we just at least share a cab? So, you know, it's that moment where you kind of know what's going to happen next, but you can rationalize. And I truthfully wasn't ready to close the door yet. So I was like, yeah, I mean, it's environmentally conscious to carpool. <laughs> so we get in this cab together. But the minute the door is closed, it's like all bets are off. And his hands are like everywhere. And, you know, you like it, but you don't. And you like it, you don't. And just before it escalates to a point of any major religious problem, we get to my doorstep, and I say goodnight, and I jump out of the cab, slam the door behind me, and I take a few steps, and, and that's when it occurs to me that even though I slam the door, I never heard it shut. And then, at that moment, I hear the door shut, and the cab pulls away, and I turn around, and standing on my curb is Warren Beatty. And it was this very surreal moment where I was like, I can't shake. Warren Beatty? <laughs> and so uh, he's like, just let me come inside with you. And I was like, oh, no, I, I was being serious. I, I don't want you to come in. He's like, oh, come on, you know, just let me come in. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm, I'm going in by myself. It was really nice to meet you. Have a good night. And he sort of, I remember he looked at me and he was like, please? <laughs> and the way he said it was like he was trying to remember, like, what is that word again? <laughs> Teaspoon. No, that's not it. Avocado. No. And I just started laughing, and I was like, no, you do not need to come home with me. You need to go home, and you need to write a play where the person does that and says please in exactly that way, because that was amazing. And he sort of laughed and put his hands on my shoulder and he was like, come on, you must realize how cute you are. And it was that moment where like, the person shines their light on you and you think, 
wow, I did all of this for that. You know, like that need for somebody to tell me that I was cute. And like, I don't know when you have the moment where you realize that you should ultimately be able to tell that to yourself. Also, I don't know if, you, if that's even fully possible. But looking at him, I was like, you know what? Thank you, good night. And I kissed him on the cheek, goodbye. And I put my keys in my glass door and I open it and shut it and see him behind me standing outside. And I wave, good night. And then I put the key in the second glass door and shut it. And my apartment is like right next to the glass door. So I go to open my apartment and um, I hear him from outside lean into the glass and say, just show me your tits. <laughs> like as though I'm gonna turn around and press my tits against the glass for him. So I, I just sort of like, said no, waved, and like opened my door and shut the door behind me. And I had that moment, right, where you turn the light on. And the last thing I did was like a cute wave goodbye, shut the door, flip the light on, and then immediately like dropped my purse. And I started doing like the icky dance. And I was like, oh, and I was in the middle of the icky dance when it occurred to me that my window faces the street. <laughs> and the curtain was open. And I just stop and turn and there's Warren Beatty just sort of staring at me. So I kind of put my hands at my side, walked into the bathroom, and I finally closed the door. Thank you. I drink my milk and I don't check no expiration date. And I show up to the airport about the time they board the plane. And when I'm in a rush, I park in the handicapped space. I use a public restroom and never wash my hands. Oh, look out, Mama. I'm a risk-taking man. That's right. Alec Gross channeling the man in black there. Now, Alec Gross may be a risk-taking man, but is Leo Allen a human being with foibles? You'll soon see Leo is half of the duo Sloven and Allen. He's written for SNL, performed on Conan, worked on Michael and Michael Have Issues and Important Things with Dimitri Martin. He's also just a great guy. Here's Leo at the Risk Live show with his story, Wet Dream. By way of preface, I thought for my story, I would just share a thing that happened more recently than the story, which is sort of connected to it, which is I was walking down 57th Street. I live on the, uh, in Hell's Kitchen-ish, and I was walking up 57th Street, and I was out on one of my premise walks, and I uh, was eating an apple, uh, and I started to choke on the apple. And I had sort of a mixed reaction in my mind, because on the one hand, I didn't want anybody to notice me, because I had failed at something relatively easy. <laughs> but on the other hand, I needed someone to notice me, because I might die. <laughs> and that dichotomous feeling was going on in my mind, and I, I waited too long to get assistance to the point where I was going to die. And in my mind, I was like, great, way to go. But then out of nowhere, my, my body took over, and it did that thing where it's like, oh, oh, and it spit out the chunk of apple, and I survived. And I was, for a few minutes, I was just ecstatic. I was like, way to go, body. Awesome, I did not know you knew how to do that. We are indeed a team. And for a few minutes, I was just so happy about that. But then I started thinking about it. I was like, wait a minute, body. How come you don't take over at other times when my mind is being indecisive? Like, you know, like when you're in a relationship for four years too long and you're having yet another silent breakfast. How come your body doesn't just go like, And they'd just be like, well, I guess it's over. Uh, one can't argue with biology. 
So that said, I do have a hard time ending things. I have a very hard time ending things. And I was in a relationship uh, a few years ago that uh, was probably in about 18, 19 months. It was a year too long, at least, at that point. And I, I just kept ignoring, there was communication issues, and I just kept ignoring all these obvious signs. I just kept ignoring them. But then, one night, I had a dream I couldn't ignore anymore. The dream was very vivid. You know how, you, sometimes you have a dream that's very vivid. And this dream was, I was in a bus station, and I was, it was a very realistic bus station, just a terrible, like, Greyhound station. I was wandering around, and it was very specific and real, and there were announcements over the loudspeaker, which are like, like, when the bus was leaving, leaving for Baltimore in 25, like, that kind of thing. And uh, I should say that I, something I do is I write down my dreams, and I look them up on this website, dreammoods.com, which I know is a little bit new agey and maybe lame, but I don't pay attention to sports. Um, so you'd be surprised by how much time you have on your hands when you don't pay attention to sports. It's amazing that I don't play the piano. It's actually shocking. So I looked up intercom, and intercom, according to this website, it's your subconscious talking to you, which is already a bad sign, because my subconscious is talking to me like this. I'm not hearing myself. It's like, it's pathetically literal as to what's happening in my life. So I'm wandering around this bus station in this dream, and I like, you know, those weird dream details, like I see my friend's father at the magazine stands. It's not my friend's father. It's like my friend's father with a beard. Like, it's just weird. And then in the dream, I start to really, really have to go to the bathroom. In the dream, like really badly. Um, which, uh, and so I go, I wander around, I find the men's room in the bus station. And it's very realistic, the men's bathroom. It's like those tin urinals, like that really cheap bus station, like very real horrible, dirty, and, you know, again, on the website, a, a, a bathroom is like a, a, a purging sort of situation, right? So, I'm in the bathroom, still hearing the announcements, because that's what happens in a real bus station, and in the dream, I have to go to the bathroom so bad that in the dream, I actually start to urinate. In the dream, and I looked that up, urinating in dream means like a literal, like you're purging emo negative emotions. So negative emotions are being purged in my dream. But then I wake up to find that I'm actually urinating. So an alternate interpretation of urinating in a dream is you really have to go to the bathroom. And I should say that this isn't like 20 years ago. This is, uh, this is recently. I'm not a 12-year-old with a crush. Uh, this is very recently. And, and also, the bad thing is, that not only did I wake up and I urinated all over myself in my bed, but my girlfriend is in the bed at the time. So I'm like, oh no, when I realized what happened, I just feel awful, really. And I'm not proud of this, but the first thing I did upon realizing what was really happening was I felt around, and I felt, and, and I felt that she was dry. And I'm not proud of this, but in my mind I was like, oh man, now I can't blame it on her. Um, so, I, what I decided to do, because the, 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 the multitude, the, the, most of the damage is contained in my boxer shorts. So I was like, I'll just get up, I'll change my boxer shorts. Maybe by the morning, the sheets will dry. No one will be the wiser. We can just continue on as if nothing happened. So I did that, I changed my boxer shorts. Um, I put on another pair and I got back into bed and I'm laying in bed, trying to go back to sleep, trying to stay in the dry area. And I started to think like, I started to get kind of mad at my brain 
Because I was like, why aren't you on the same team with me? I mean, my brain goes to all the trouble to construct a bus station that's unbelievably real. Like, the mise-en-scene was uh, Oscar-worthy. Oscar-worthy. And, and then my brain constructs a urinal so that I will relieve my... Why doesn't my brain just have the bus station make an announcement like, Leo, Leo. Attention, attention, Leo, you are well into your 30s and about to urinate in your bed next to your girlfriend. But no, my, and my brain always does that kind of thing. I think my brain is against me. Like, a lot of times, I've done this, like, I've been about to leave my apartment and I, like, have my wallet at my desk or whatever, and I've literally been grabbing my stuff really quick to leave and I've seen my wallet on, on my desk and I've said in my mind, like, you're definitely gonna forget that wallet. And, and then I've gone downtown and like two hours later, I'm like, oh! Because I remember my brain saying, you're definitely gonna forget that. And it's like, well, fuck you. Like, why can't you be like, you're a good person. Pick up the wallet, buddy. Let's get through this together. No, so I go to bed angry at my brain because my brain is a jerk and I wake up the next morning, and it's sunny out, it's beautiful spring day, and I feel tentatively next to me, dry, completely dry. I'm dry, my bed's dry, my girlfriend's still asleep. Awesome. I'm gonna get away with this. So I get up, and I go, start to go, uh, you know, whatever, make her breakfast. No, not really. Um, uh, so I get out of bed, and my girlfriend wakes up, and I swear the first thing she says is, why'd you change your boxer shorts? It's like, come on. And I had a decision to make there, and the decision I made was to be honest. Because I was like, maybe this will be a beautiful moment and there'll be more openness in this relationship. So that was literally my thinking. And so I go, well, I urinated on myself in the middle of the night. She didn't take it so well. She goes, why would you tell me that? Which I guess is understandable, but what else was I gonna say? Was I gonna be like, oh, it's a magic trick I do. I go to bed with red boxer shorts and I wake up with fuchsia ones. So, so that's, um, so then I was thinking to myself, like how can I be with someone who A, pays a weird amount of attention to the boxer shorts I'm wearing. But also, B, will not accept that I'm uh, a human being with foibles. Which sometimes include wetting myself. So that, definitively, that was one of those moments in life where you, I definitively knew. Like, I was like, definitely, this moment tells me this is 100% not the person for me. And I'm proud to say that a mere seven months later, by a combination of withdrawing both emotionally and physically from this woman, I managed to end that relationship. And sure, sure, two weeks after that, we got back together for 10 more months. But then it was over because of the last night. All right, thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Won't you risk a night with me? I'll whisk you away where we could be free. So get in my bed and we'll listen to a podcast called Risk. Please? Yep, you can all get in Jordan Cooper's bed. I did quit bedwetting at the distinctive age of 13, which is when 70% of serial killers kick that habit. So I've got that going for me. We have one more story today, and it comes to us from an MVP among friends of our show. Janine Garofalo has done our show twice now in the few months we've existed, and it's meant an awful lot to us. Here's Janine with her story, The Replay. Okay, I, I don't know, it's not really a sneaky choice. Um, I know that that was maybe the, uh, 
the title of it, I don't know if this qualifies as a sneaky choice, but it is something I did while uh, in private. Let me go back a little bit. I have a bad back. I have a history of a bad back. I've herniated my disc more times than I care to mention. Once you have a bad back, you tend to always have a bad back, especially if you do not strengthen your core, which uh, I seem to not be doing. I seem to spend a lot of time not strengthening my core. So therefore, we have a delicate situation with my back. And one of the times I herniated two discs, um, I will tell you about the story and then what, what followed. And I herniated the two discs this time laughing. And I will tell you what I was laughing at. This is not uh, to name drop, but I need to tell you who said this, this funny thing uh, for you to also en envision how funny it would be. You know Will Arnett, the very, very funny Will Arnett from Arrested Development, among other things. You know what his voice sounds like. So I need you to think of that when I tell you what made me laugh. I was staying at a hotel at the time because I was working in Los Angeles, and um, as luck would have it, at the same time, Will Arnett and John Hodgman of The Daily Show were also at the hotel a few floors below me. I happened to be riding the elevator at the same time up to my room, and they to theirs, as uh, uh, John Hodgman and Will Arnett, it turned out, had rooms right next to each other, and Will Arnett claimed he could hear John Hodgman through the walls doing a thing called a pump and dump. I'm so sorry to say, to say I had not heard of it, and I said, what is that? And Will Arnett, picture Will Arnett saying, oh, it's when you defecate and masturbate at the same time. And he said it to embarrass to his core John Hodgman. That idea of John Hodgman doing that, with Will Arnett pretending he could hear him doing that, made me laugh so hard that I herniated two discs. Um, they were ready to go anyway. I mean, it's not to say, I mean, he's funny, but they were ready to go anyway. Of the aforementioned non-strengthened core. Um, now they exit the story. They have nothing more to do with this story. And again, I didn't do that to, to name drop. I just, you, you can see what, how funny that would be. And uh, so by the time I got to my floor, it's one of those things that you have herniated or ruptured discs, you know something horrible has happened. Maybe you're sneezing or shutting a window, it happens. And I realized, oh, this is bad. Uh, I can't move. And I had to crawl to my room and open the door, and then I was, I was out. I was done on the floor. And this went on for about two weeks. So another friend uh, took pity on me and got me a bunch of, um, what are the kids calling it, weed? Pot. I feel uncomfortable saying I'm not really a pot smoker per se, and I don't know what they call it. Uh, I guess pot. Um, I just feel silly saying that. But, uh, and also bought me a new pipe, and um, I thought, well, I'm here, I'm, I'm gonna smoke, and I have, as with all things, no sense of moderation at all. And not a lot of experience with it, because in my day, in the 80s, you smoke pot, it was not a big deal. These days, these kids, they're growing it hydroponically, it's a very big deal. And um, I smoked it, uh, the first, the first, I said, I smoked up the pot in the in the pipe. Um, a lot of it. I smoked cigarettes. I smoked filled with cigarettes. I was I was just loading it, smoking it, loading it, smoking it, and laying there on the floor. And then I realized, oh, I am, I am absolutely out of my mind. Like, and and what started happening though is I realized I am replaying in vivid vivid detail events of my life. I, I mean, these things are replaying as if they're just happening. And um, I, there's two words that I, I think will be helpful that I, I think. Um, the first word, that I, uh, perspicacious, which is defined as having a ready insight into an understanding of things. And then perspicuous, which is an adjective of an account or representation clearly expressed and easily understood, lucid, able to give an account of or express an idea clearly. Now these, that's what was happening. Does that make sense? Like, like things were unfolding. And so I decided, I am gonna understand what's wrong with me, mentally, emotionally. Now I'm not crazy, but I do have certain things that would give one pause. That have, that have, have I've tried to understand that, that, you know, this guard, right, I'm not saying poor me, is, but there's a couple of things that have made me wonder 
Why is this? A, no libido whatsoever. Never really have, could take it or leave it. Don't care. Don't care about it. I could, I could, I, I find sexuality and sex to be, um, I'm ambivalent at best, agnostic about it. I, I just really, I had a brief spurt in my late 30s, but I think that was a biological imperative of some kind. But other than that, I just never have been interested. And to this day, I'm, I'm just not particularly interested at all in sexuality or, or intimacy in that way. I don't, I don't have a fear of intimacy. It's just a lack of interest, a general lack of interest. And uh, another thing that gives me pause is just kind of a vague social anxiety. Just, I just don't, I would rather not do whatever it is you're suggesting. You know what I mean? Like the worst thing that could happen to me is a Sunday jazz brunch. That's the worst thing that honestly could happen to me. It's a jazz brunch where people are meeting or, you know, a christening or, I, I mean, I, I like your baby. I don't need to see it. You know what I mean? Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't want to go anywhere or do anything. That's, that's problematic. I, don't, I, I could never think of anything. I, I like to make jewelry. Uh, I, I like to read uh, and watch TV. And uh, this is a problematic, and I'm sure looking back over my life in the future, I will regret this. So I wanted to understand it. Another thing, I have a very, uh, I can't stand family function. I cannot stand. And my family's very nice. There's really no real reason that I will avoid at all costs any traditional family function that actually, uh, I just, I, I can't, I, and I've never wanted to be married and never wanted to have children. Never, not as a kid, nothing. So I decided this pot is making me replay my life. I'm gonna get into this. I'm gonna figure out where these turning points are. What, what were, were there specific things that happened that can lead one to have no libido, no interest in intimacy, no interest in doing anything ever, uh, during the day, especially during the day. That's terrible during the day, honestly. Um, and, and no interest in family fun or function. And they, they're very nice. You know what I mean? There's no dysfunction. None. There, there is nobody touched me inappropriately. Nothing bad happened, honest to God. So um, I started with this pot, 1969, first day of uh, kindergarten. Uh, with a very vivid memory, because it's the first time somebody got my name wrong, Jane Ann Garofalo. It's the first time, and it's happened always ever since, but first day of kindergarten when they were telling us where we were going with the teacher, Jane Ann Garofalo. So I said, I'll start there uh, in, in September of 1969. And so for a week, every night, I was, I was replaying um, school, just every, every, everything. And I came up with like a, a couple of things, maybe. Um, for libido, um, I, we did live with my Irish grandmother, um, on, and don't ever do that. I know you're supposed to, it's supposed to be nice to live with your grandparents so they don't go to a home. Listen, if your grandmother was born in Northern Ireland in 1898, yes, I am old enough, my parents are old enough, but that is possible. Uh, she was born in Northern Ireland in 1898 and then uh, emigrated to this country, well, oldest of 13 children, uh, and then, as happens in old-timey ways, of course, uh, her parents were quickly taken by the bloody flux or the regular, whatever, you know, old-timey stuff. And um, so, so old-timey that her brother actually died by getting hit on the head with a rock on the lower east side. That's how old-timey. And um, she lived with us, and she was very strict about sexuality and, and be modest. Maybe, maybe Crane and her distaste for the, she's very religious, maybe? And then I also saw the movie. We were a test family for HBO. Um, we got HBO uh, in the early 70s, and there was a movie called Lipstick uh, with Margot Hemingway, where a very graphic sexual assault takes place. Now, I in no way should have been watching that. I was being babysat, and the babysitter allowed my sister and I to watch this movie Lipstick, which undid me to a degree where I, I cannot even tell you to witness uh, something like that that may have something to do with it. Um, then there was an unfortunate finger bang episode that went awry in 1978 at a party that I thought was just gonna be a fun pool party. And uh, that was a bummer, because uh, I was a very young whatever I was, and I just didn't feel like anyone should be putting their hands in my bathing suit. I thought it was just gonna be pizza and swimming. Um, and that 
that was awful? Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, I didn't reach too many conclusions with this. Then I was thinking about family stuff. Family stuff. Now, everybody's got their family stories. And again, mine was not particularly bad. But there was some unpleasantness. And I know there's a podcast. I went back and forth on this. I am praying my siblings do not listen to this podcast. Uh, one of my siblings uh, was a bit of a bit of a bad teenage kid. And uh, in addition to that, at an Alice Cooper concert when he was taking uh, hallucinogenics, he had a schizophrenic break. Uh, which I don't know if it had to do with both Alice Cooper and the theatrics and the drugs he was taking, and then as it turned out, he was a bit bipolar in addition to that. Again, this is not his fault. He's a very nice guy. He's kind of a Republican lawyer right now. Uh, that's the worst thing you can say about my family. They were Republican. That's the worst thing, which is pretty bad. But uh, at this point, really. Um, and he was so out of his mind until they realized he needed to, different medications and stuff like that, that our house really was a house of horrors because he was a, an out of control kid who had had a schizophrenic break and uh, every once in a while he would do things like take a croquet mallet and break everyone down the house. Um, and threaten to kill us. Is that it? I mean, I, I don't say that, I don't say that in a poor way because it was really a nice upbringing and he really is a nice guy. And it was, I, I just really was replaying some of those nights when we literally had to hide under the bed because we kind of closed. But is that it? You know, I mean, I don't know. Is, is, that, is that why I don't like family fun? Uh, I don't know. Because, like I said, and he and all my siblings have gone on to raise great kids. I really, they're great parents. And my parents, great parents, great grandparents. My, grandpa, my, my father actually has a month that says world's greatest grandpa. That's how good. He, uh, he is, I don't know if they make a lot of those, but he's got one. And um, that was one of them. And then I had an uncle, as everyone does, the one that drinks too much and is just a schmuck all the way around. Vaguely inappropriate with the young girls. Vaguely, but mm, is that it? I don't know. He used to do things like, he likes to go swimming with us a lot. He likes to always make us go swimming. Is that it? I don't, I don't know. And then there's just, perhaps, and then I, I should wrap this up, perhaps it's just that families, maybe, uh, here's, in summation, let's do this. In summation, is it possible that actually there's quite a lot of people who do not enjoy families, family functions, don't really want to be married next children, but they just are loath to admit it, or their peer pressure, or is there also a lot of people who could be uh, take or leave sex. Is, is, is that possible that uh, they just don't want to discuss it? I was thinking maybe it's much more normal. And I'm talking about people who've even had the kids. They definitely can't admit it. Uh, they, it's, you know. But you know how everybody always says the same thing? Having children, it's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Is it? You know what I mean? Like, is it? I mean, uh, why? Everybody loves babies, and you know, we all love hug time and toddlers and the cute animal ear hat, but a 15-year-old, is that the greatest? You know, I mean, like, is that great to have a 15-year-old? I mean, you've seen them. You've seen the hills and the way they talk. Um, but you know, I just don't know that it's that. And have you seen Intervention? You know, those kids with the meth? Um, I just, I don't know how great or is marriage. Uh, you know. The divorce rate's pretty high for it being such a great day, you know? So, in conclusion, I did this for a week and replayed uh, my life over and over again. And then I even did the thing where I project onto my deathbed. Uh, what will I wish I had done or not done? And um, I, I never, the only conclusion I reach is what I just mentioned to you, is, is, is it possible that there's lots of us out there who really won't, don't want to be tethered to these conventions, but it's just not very nice to say it, especially if you're a female. Uh, when females say they don't want to have children, people, I think, in her response is, oh, she's cold. She's great. I think they, they do that. I assure you I am, I'm probably not the warmest person in the world, but that's not indicative of anything. You know what I mean? I do, I'll tell you, I, uh, Animal Planet, forget, don't, don't get me started. I'll weep like a baby. I don't even like to see people be mean to animated animals. I, it does, it bothers me. Like, that's how much I love the animals. So I'm not all, I'm not made of wood, you know. But um, I, 
I wish I had a better wrap up, but I, I don't. I mean, I, I plan on digging, doing that again when somebody, because grandma does want to ask for pot. It's got to be given to me. I don't know how they're getting it or um, where the young people are getting it. I just feel at my age, it would seem unseemly um, for me to go buy pot down at 7B or something like that. Because I'm a middle-aged lady, for Christ's sake. And, um, okay, oh, there's the light. Oh, anyway, you guys have been very nice. Thank you. is Risk, and that was our last show at Joe's Pub in New York. Our live show will be back somewhere in New York in 2010. Our podcast will continue to come out every two weeks. Risk is created and hosted by me, Kevin Allison, produced by Michelle Walson. Our sound engineer is Nick Montalbano. Our associate producers are Emily Altman, Timothy Meehan, and Madison Perry. And remember what the Pakistanis say about Risk? Buffaloes are Buffalo's sisters.